You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Hey, Chad. Yeah. Do you know when the first ad was published? Ooh, you got me on, on that you're one. the marketing guru. You should know this. <laughs> oh, geez. Okay, if I have to guess, which I do, I'm saying somewhere in the 1400s, because I think that was when the printing press was invented. Way wrong. Way wrong. Not even close, huh? Not even close, no. <laughs> hey, it was worth a shot. The first ad was actually written in ancient Egypt, a thousand years BC. Oh, wow. And it was in a piece of papyrus. And it was an ad for a runaway slave. It was found in the ruins of Thebes, and it's currently in the British Museum. Oh, wow, that's cool. Yeah, you can actually go look at it. Yeah, it'd be cool to check out. Yeah, so how are you doing? How is the good old quarantine treating you and the family? Well, it's supposed to be really, really warm in SoCal this weekend. Yeah, I know, I saw that. Yeah, it's going to be really nice. We've had a number of weeks of rain to coincide with quarantine so makes it easier right <laughs> yeah we've all really just been truly stuck in the house yeah so it's going to be great to get out and swim a little bit and enjoy the heat and the sunshine and just be outside as much as possible by ourselves but <laughs> but be outside yeah at least we have that right i was reading this morning that in spain they're allowing kids out for the first time and i think in six weeks from their lockdown so it takes the quarantine to a whole new level yeah wow at least we can go outside yeah go walks and bike rides and stuff yeah yeah exactly how about you good same i actually had the antibody test done earlier this week the abbott test and came back positive so <laughs> i had the virus seven eight weeks ago when i was i was really sick you know we just all thought it was just a bad flu or a bad cold as you rather say it only lasted for about a week and went away. So I tested positive and I'm still trying to figure out exactly what that means. I'm donating some plasma next week. I don't know how I feel about it yet. I can't even imagine and super grateful that you're okay and that you were able to recover. Your family's okay. Crazy, right? Absolutely crazy. Yeah. It just goes to show like we've all got to just take this seriously and, and be careful. Yeah. So today's episode is going to be a spicy episode because we're talking about something that's super polarizing, but it's super interesting. So let's dive in. So in 2017, in the Winfern High School in Houston, Texas, they expelled a 17-year-old senior, India Landry, for refusing to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance in protest for police brutality and Donald Trump as president. Mm. Yeah, that sounds super political, super polarizing. Which is what the show is all about, right? No, 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 follow me here. This has got nothing to do with politics. So despite her expulsion, most legal scholars agree that refusing to stand for the pledge is protected by the Constitution. In fact, this has been heard at the Supreme Court level multiple times. And the government basically cannot require a student to participate in the pledge or yeah. they cannot compel them to do so. Yeah. Do you understand now why it's relevant to marketing? <laughs> I don't think we've quite gotten there yet, but we will. <laughs> Stick with well, us. Well, in order to answer your question of how this plays into our show and into marketing and into storytelling about marketing, I need to go back. I need to go back about 130 years. And I'm going back to the morning of October 21st, 1892, a group of children across America rose to their feet, facing a newly installed American flag, and recited these 22 words. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, 
under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Okay, so that is The Rock. <laughs> That's The Rock of WWE <laughs> and not children, but you get the point. The point that I'm trying to make here is that the Pledge of Allegiance is super polarizing in America. It's on the one end, people protesting it to make a point, and on the other end, it is all about patriotism and about something that is near and dear to all Americans' hearts, right? So my five-year-old, when we drop them off at kindergarten, all the students come out in the courtyard, and they all put their hands in their chest, and the flag goes up, and they all do the Pledge of Allegiance. This is something that's been ingrained in the U.S. culture for 130 years, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was a Boy Scout growing up in the Boy Scouts of America. You know, it's a big part of kind of the overall patriotic culture within Scouts, school, all of those types of things. It's just very ingrained in our culture. Yeah. So let's tell the marketing story about this and stay away from the political side. <laughs> Good idea. That's, <laughs> that's, that's what the show's about. Awesome. Really, how this marketing story comes together is that it all starts in 1827 when a Boston, Massachusetts man named Perry Mason founded a magazine called The Youth's Companion. So I know we've started out this episode a little bit mysteriously, but we're not talking about the TV detective from the 1950s TV show, right? No, no, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're not. Funny, though, is that that fictional detective, Perry Mason, is actually a small character in our show today. Yeah. Thanks to a guy named Earl Stanley Gardner, who, when he was a kid, was really fond of this magazine that Perry Mason founded, The Youth's Companion. And so when Earl grew up and started his own writing career, he borrowed the name Perry Mason for his famous fictional attorney detective and based it off of the wow. founder of <laughs> the Youth's Companion magazine. I wonder if he did that because he knew the content of today's show or if he did that just because of the actual magazine itself. You know what I mean? Interesting. Ooh. So the early issues of this magazine, the Youth Companion, were centered around religion and patriotism. And they wanted to increase their subscription base. And they did this by expanding their audience. So in the 1890s, they started steering the content towards entertainment, and they were targeting both adults and children during this time. They also had a lot of uh, pieces contributed by really famous writers like Stowe, Mark Twain, Emily Dickinson, Booker Washington, and Jack London. So right in the middle of this expansion push for the youth companion to increase his circulation, what do we do if we need to do that? We come up with a <laughs> campaign, right? Of course. So they needed a marketing campaign so that they can increase the circulation. And the reason why they wanted to do that is because they can sell more ads. So this sounds super familiar to us, right? This is something that we all do. Yeah, exactly. It's still done today. If you're a publisher and you want to increase your revenue, there's a few ways to do that. And it's exactly what you just described. It's increasing yeah. your circulation or your digital impressions. Yeah. So you can sell more ads at a higher price, at a more premium value, attract better advertisers, better writers, the whole shebang. So yeah, this is very familiar territory. And this is actually where American history is about to change forever. Wow, that's a big statement. <laughs> it is a big statement. And it's going to be really interesting to hear this unfold. So James B., Upham, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, and if not, I apologize. He was the marketing director in the magazine's premium department. 
and he came up with an idea to capitalize on the upcoming Columbian Exposition, which was the 400th anniversary of Columbus's first journey to the New World. So this is really special one-time event, first time in 400 years it's happening. And they would use this kind of unique situation as an opportunity to put their magazine company in the spotlight, but they needed an organic way to do it versus, you know, just placing an ad and trying to connect themselves to it somehow. They just knew this was going to be a really big event. So James decided that creating a special ceremony, including a pledge showing respect to the flag, would be something they could drive and own in kind of their own way because they were a magazine that had had this kind of political background. Mm -hmm. And it would be an on-brand execution for them and a great way to kick off the Columbus Day festivities through creating this mass recitation in schools across the country that would be planned for October 21st, 1892. But in order to kind of pull this all together and make it happen... James needed a really good copywriter to come up with what the ceremony should consist of, what this short pledge should be. And so he hires someone named Francis Bellamy, who he brings on as a staff writer in his premium department. And one of his primary tasks is to write this pledge. I wonder what it was like to work in the premium department. <laughs> Sounds like exciting times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so together they worked with patriotic civil groups like the Grand Army, the Republic or the GAR and the National Education Association to basically get sponsorship through the youth companion for this Columbus Day observance. And throughout all this, they wanted to celebrate the flag. That was like the focal point of the campaign, basically. So they had the hook. They had access to the pond, and now they needed the bait. And they needed to really drive interest in this flag to make it successful. So the second big thing that they did was they came up with an idea to sell American flags at cost with the premium incentive to maintain the magazine's political influence, even though the content of the magazine was becoming less political. And most importantly, as an incentive to increase subscription rates, like we just said, to generate revenue. At the end of the day, they're trying to increase the subscriptions here because then they can run more ads and they can make more money. So their marketing campaign was a very familiar tactic. It's basically a loss leader. So on Black Friday, when you go into the store, they're selling these flat screen 65 inch TVs for like 250 bucks, right? And they know they're going to lose money on that. But the point is to get you into the store because once they get you in... You can't get out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Your cart's going to be stacked full of like 20 items you didn't really need, but hey, they're on no, but sale. But you really can't supposedly. get out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's too many people. So it's a very common tactic. And yep. there's actually some amazing research done on this and an amazing quote from Mike Bellamy who is a professor of English literature and rhetoric at the University of St. Thomas. And as an ancestor of Francis Bellamy, who of course is the writer of the pledge, has some amazing research on this. So in a 2010 piece by Grace Kelly for the Daily Planet, he says, quote, the companion sent students across the country 100 free shares in the influence of the flag. They, in turn, were to raise money to buy their school flags by selling these shares to classmates at 10 cents a share. Though the official theme of the Columbus Day extravaganza was the Enlightenment, 
manifested in the inadvertent discovery of the new world and by the establishment of America's free tax-supported schools, the flag and pledge caper actually equated citizenship with capitalism and stakeholding with holding stock. Old glory wasn't a sacred symbol of the nation's indivisible unity, but a commodifiable object like any other. In short, commercialized patriotism has been with us for some time. Amazing. <laughs> it is. So they weren't just selling flags at cost to schools. They were literally giving kickbacks in the form of company stock to kids who would then sell the stock to their classmates as a fundraiser for the school to buy flags. So it's this kind of like convoluted, but really smart, effective grassroots kind of campaign. Yeah, I was just going to say that it sounds all over the place, but it's really well calculated. It's a very, very smart campaign to incentivize people to sell more subscriptions. Super smart. <laughs> right. It's like a loyalty program. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So by the end of 1892, the magazine had sold flags to over 26,000 schools across the country with this program. Super successful. Wow. Yeah. So Mike Bellamy also had this to say about it. Quote, over 26,000 flags were sold at cost, or so said the youth's companion. The surrounding campaign certainly enhanced the magazine's considerable prestige and helped boost its circulation by 50%. A variety of pseudo-events were orchestrated by Bellamy, the project manager. These included a presidential proclamation, interviews with congressmen, and boilerplate editorials distributed to newspapers across the nation. The pledge attained its canonical status through this media blitz. Nothing of its scope had ever occurred before. Wow, so they really tapped into the patriotism thing over here, that vein. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. So looking at the numbers here, they increased their circulation from 400,000 to 600,000. That's a 50% jump. And to put it in perspective here, during this time, this was the most popular magazine in circulation. And part of this of doing this, they partnered with a movement called the Schoolhouse Flag Movement that helped accelerate this. But it depends on what you read. There is some information available that says that they were actually involved in creating this movement and fueling the movement. But nonetheless, it was an unbranded movement. Yet again, something that is close and dear to our heart as we create non-branded campaigns or activity groups for our clients. And in order for them to have made this so successful, they needed a really catchy, unbranded ad copy. I'm calling it unbranded ad copy yeah. because it is that. They didn't have the youth companion in the pledge. Right. So it's unbranded. And in September 8th, 1892, about a month before the Columbus Day event, they published the first copy of the Pledge of Allegiance written by Francis Bellamy. And during the 1892 National Columbian Celebration Ceremony, thousands of public kids recited the pledge and a new tradition was born. This is just mind-blowing to me. So let's talk about the ad copy, you know, that was so successful. Not only did they drive the sales, but they also significantly changed how Americans <laughs> do things every single right. day. There's this massive unintended consequence that I'm going to call it the viral campaign. It went viral for 130 years, and here we are today, and is being recited every single morning by every single public school kid in the U.S. That is just phenomenal. It totally changed the way we see ourselves as a country and as citizens, you know, within the country. For those of us who are from the U.S., 
And I think that that was because Francis Bellamy really knew what he was doing. He was super talented. This didn't happen by accident. Every word in the pledge was very intentional from him. And even though it amazingly only took him two hours to write the pledge, you know, as he presented it to the team, there was discussion about what words should be included or shouldn't be included and why. But it was highly influenced by who Francis Bellamy was as a person, what kind of his Mm -hmm. background was and his kind of philosophy in general. He was actually a Baptist minister before the assignment, and he was an outspoken Christian socialist and a cousin of utopian novelist Edward Bellamy. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He actually was pushed out of his position as a Baptist minister because he was so outspoken about his socialist values and, and ideas. So Christian socialism was this group striving to kind of create a more just and equitable society through Christian values and, and socialism. But during this time, there was also a lot of controversial points of views that they had as it relates to racism and treatment of women and so on, right? Absolutely. And to that point, Amy Crawford wrote in the Smithsonian Magazine that in a series of speeches and editorials that were equal parts marketing, political theory, and actually racism, he argued that Gilded Age capitalism, along with every alien immigrant of inferior race, eroded traditional values, and that pledging allegiance would ensure that the distinctive principles of true Americanism will not perish as long as free public education endures. And I can hear you super nervous. You really don't want this to be political. <laughs> I really <laughs> you're don't. Tra- you're, you're trying to walk that line. <laughs> <laughs> so carefully. <laughs> but, you know, all of this is included because it's important context to understand why the copy is what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And in advertising, we always talk about knowing and understanding your audience, the personas of your audience, and then crafting messaging that is purposeful, that will make them think certain things, feel certain things, do certain things as a result of that, all based on the behavioral insights that we have about those people. Yeah, we want to evoke an emotion in the audience, right? And that's exactly what he did. Precisely. And so even though he was a fan of patriotism in public schools, he actually didn't even write the Pledge of Allegiance with the idea that it's going to be recited daily by every school kid in America. This was specifically for a one-time event, and his most pressing concern was selling magazines through this event. And something to note here as well, during this time, his boss, James, the marketing director of the magazine, actually started claiming that he wrote the pledge. (laughs) Yes. And he started taking credit for it. And decades and decades of lawsuits and smear campaigns, actually a group of scholars reviewed all the evidence and then decided, okay, this is actually Bellamy that wrote it. Yeah, because of course, you know, it's super successful. It kind of takes on this life of its own. And unfortunately, a little bit of a blemish on James, uh, poor management style is to take credit for the work of your people. And unfortunately, that's what he tried to do. In fact, kind of an interesting story about that is that Francis Bellamy actually found out about it on accident. He was listening to the radio to a quiz show on the radio. And the question came up, who wrote the Pledge of Allegiance? And they said it was James. And he said, hang on, 
that's not a thing. And so that's how all of the lawsuits and all that kind of stuff got started. Uh, crazy. So the success of this catapulted his advertising career, so to speak. This was his first big public deliverable campaign. And it was so successful. They sold so many magazines. His case study was so strong that he actually moved to New York City and he worked in advertising for the following 19 years. He had a long stint at Ericsson Advertising Agency for six years. He was an account executive and a copywriter. And during this time, those were pretty prestigious roles. This is not like today yeah. where it's more of an entry-level role. And he was literally the earliest madman of, of Madison Avenue, the way we think about it. Wow. There's a really good description of this on tampapix.com where they say, that he was instrumental in developing the industry as we know it because it was in the infancy stage of signboards, neon lights, double page color ads, and really the beginning of radio ads. He believed in high pressure advertising and he also believed that advertising can be truthful. He also believed that advertising should create a demand for the increasing output of the American industry. He saw selling as a very, very important business tactic and advertising copy was basically his speciality in doing that. There's a book that he wrote and not with the most catchiest of titles. <laughs> it's titled On the Science of Advertising Copy, Effective Magazine Advertising, 508 Essays About 111 Advertisements. It's a mouthful. Yeah, it is a mouthful. That he wrote in New York. And when he was in New York, he worked on a lot of big clients like Westinghouse and Allied Chemical and so on. So he, he was a pretty big deal. Yeah. This clearly goes to show what his expertise was and the level of talent that he was able to bring to writing the pledge. And there were a lot of unintended consequences. So he was obviously very intentional in what he did with the pledge, but I don't think that he really could have foreseen what happened with the pledge going forward, going after that event. So shortly after Columbus Day, where the pledge is recited for the first time, school boards across the country begin incorporating the Pledge of Allegiance into their daily morning flag raising ceremony. That was something that, you know, I think probably would have been a bonus to him, but he wasn't really kind of pushing for. And the phrase under God was incorporated into the Pledge of Allegiance on June 14th in 1954. So that was like a, a change order that came. That came <laughs> the, the client requested a change later on. Yes. <laughs> a revision to the copy, Doc. <laughs> yes. Uh, so that, that happened in 1954 by joint resolution of Congress amending the flag code that was enacted in 1942. And what's actually pretty, I think, ironic about this is that the original pledge was written by a somewhat fascist Christian socialist who also had all of these capitalistic ideas and really kind of pushed the capitalistic incorporation of patriotism. But yet the addition of under God was added as the Cold War began taking hold and President Eisenhower saw it as this kind of way to protect the nation from the threat of secular communism. <laughs> but the pledge was like written by a socialist. And obviously communism and socialism are two different things, but it is just kind of a little bit ironic. So in the 1940s, school kids also did the Bellamy salute. And that actually looks like a Nazi salute. Yeah, I saw a picture of it. It's like literally palms down 
arm stretched out in front of you. It looks exactly like a Nazi salute. Yeah, and so that actually became really problematic because even though that was a part of the original flag ceremony for Columbus Day and had kind of continued in this daily recitation of the pledge, as World War II started taking shape and, you know, they realized, ooh, the optics around this are terrible because Hitler and Mussolini are using this as kind of their symbol. We can't have our school kids doing the same thing. And so they changed that during World War II to placing your hand over your heart instead of the Bellamy salute. Where it started, yeah. So there is a raging debate today about how Francis Bellamy would have felt about all of this. But his daughter said that Francis Bellamy, quote, believed in absolute separation of church and state and purposely didn't include these words in the pledge, even though he was a Baptist minister. Mm, wow. Yeah. So the flag is now today sold in every single type of merchandise. I became a U.S. citizen a decade ago, and that's the first thing they give you, a little flag. You stand there <laughs> right. and you, you do your ceremony with a flag in your hand. And obviously you can debate and say that the flag would have been the flag without all of this happening. But the fact that it is recited every single morning to little children growing up for 12 years of being in school kind of like made the flag a very polarizing figure as well in the States. So it's being used in political debates and it's become like this capitalistic life that it's taken on all by itself. So Shelley Lapkoff is an expert of the pledge, told the Washington Post, and she said it was both to get people to have flags in keeping with their own beliefs of patriotism, but also to help their business. Because just taking a step back here, this was to sell magazines. It's this viral campaign that catapulted over the last 130 years to where we are today. She went on to say, I believe the reason the flags are so prominent in our culture is because the Pledge of Allegiance and its mass marketing campaign that went on with it. That's amazing. And at the end of the day, I think the pledge is a story after all. It's a story about who we are as Americans, our identity, what we believe, how we see ourselves, what's important to us. And we tell stories to survive and orient ourselves in the world, whether it's as a business, culturally, and just as human beings, our stories really give us identity. A direction. Absolutely. Understanding of the world, which is not only an essential survival tool, but it's also kind of what gives us meaning in our personal lives. And so that all is reality because we're evolutionarily and kind of instinctively conditioned to pay attention to stories. It was how we knew to stay close to mom and dad as hunter-gatherers, right? Like we'd have these stories that would scare us into staying close, you know, as little kids, or to be wary of strangers from an unknown tribe or any of those types of things. Like stories are just passed down from generation to generation and were the primary mechanism for keeping us safe for a long time. And that there, what you just described, is what marketing and advertising taps into. Our brains have evolved to release dopamine and oxytocin which like really embeds emotion and memories deeply into our brains, right? So we see something, we hear something, a jingle, or read something from an old ad that we saw when we were growing up, and automatically it's got a 
physiological effect on us. Right. And I think this is exactly why this story is so powerful, because Balani knew the power of storytelling. And he knew, because this is a, a 360 campaign, for lack of a better word, I'm sure it was back then, because they didn't have all the tactics and the mediums we have today. So over the years, this story have been retold and reframed and has really evolved into what we have today. And I can guarantee you that the large majority of our listeners that is listening to this today did not know this. And there are a lot of things that we're exposed to that has shaped us as human beings that started not in storytelling the stuff that your granddad told you, storytelling that that a copywriter wrote. And I think that's why it's so powerful to understand that marketing influences everything that we do on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and those influences are mundane. They're fundamental in just how we go about our lives and the way that we view things from a cultural worldview standpoint, let alone what decisions we make when we go to the store to buy a product. So it really touches just every aspect of our lives and none of us are immune to that effect. Even us as veteran advertisers, even though we understand how all of this works, we still are influenced by marketing and advertising in so many ways in our lives. Absolutely. So there's a great place for us to wrap up today's show. Please let us know in the comments if we manage to keep this unpolitical, which was definitely our objective This is not a classic rescue or a failure or a comeback, but it's just a story that we had to tell. Speak to you guys next week. You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content.